You're listening to the Mill Sunday School Podcast. This month, each month at, at Sunday School, we change topics, and uh, this is the conclusion of November, of course, last Sunday in November, and so because of that, um, this is the conclusion of a topic. The topic for the month of November is eschatology, meaning the end times, uh, the return of Christ, all of those things. I think it's something that we don't really think too much about. I can honestly or personally say um, that I don't know too much about it. Um, it's been one of the areas of the Bible that I haven't taken a huge amount of time to study. Uh, I think um, I think it is valuable. Obviously, the, a book of the Bible was written about it, uh, the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Jesus talks about the end times. He talks about his returning. So there is, of course, some extreme huge value uh, to eschatology, and so that's why we've taken this month to talk about this. Um, and so uh, this morning, we have uh, a great privilege of hearing from a great friend of mine and a great friend of the mill. Uh, his name is Rob Stennett. For uh, any of you who uh, have been around the mill for many, many years would know that Rob Stennett was kind of one of the original founding members, really, of the mill, and uh, was the announcement guy for a, how long? Five years. He's pre-Joe Kirkendall, and, uh, and, and he also now is an author. Uh, he wrote a book called The End Is Now, which is his second book, and he's going to talk about that. That book actually is a satire of the end times and of eschatology, and so though maybe not coming from a, a, a theological or purely theological perspective, I think that he's going to give an interesting perspective in regards to culture, in regards to uh, some of the ways that we might, we might look at the end times and how we've maybe been influenced by culture and uh, some of those things. So uh, please welcome with me our dear friend, Rob Stennett. Good morning. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. Um, thank you all. Good to see you all. Good to be here. Uh, just sort of opening thoughts on this topic. You've been talking about it for a couple of weeks now, and Joe's probably told you this or talked about this, but this is a hotly debated topic sort of in Christian circles, and it's debated of what exactly will happen and how it will happen, and sort of probably a top five along with you know, Calvinism, Armenianism, once saved, always saved, all these sort of big topics that we uh, debate about and talk about and everything else. And uh, uh, Aaron Stern has a way of talking about this in which there are closed-handed issues, issues in which you sort of hold on to tightly and say, these, th- you know, these are non-negotiables. I'm going to hold on to these tightly. These cannot be debated. And then there's open-handed issues in which we sort of have an open mind and come to forums like this where we can talk and we can debate and we can read and uh, ask questions and everything else. And so that's what I want you to keep in mind going forth with this is there are a lot of theories and there are a lot of debates about the end times and how it's going to play out. So I'm going to talk about some of that this morning. And uh, then we may talk about it as well at some of your tables uh, to get some discussion going. So just to give you a little bit of background on my fascination with this topic... When I was a kid, I watched a movie, my parents were leading a Bible study one night, and I was supposed to go to bed, and I wasn't supposed to watch it, but I got up and sort of snuck out and snuck downstairs and kind of looked over the stairs enough to where I could see the TV, and they're watching this VHS tape, I I think it was a beta tape, or I don't don't remember what it was exactly, but they're watching a tape of a movie called A Thief in the Night. Has anyone seen uh, that film? Yeah, a few of you have seen that film. It is the pre-runner, it's sort of the first... Uh, at least on movie form, Christian, big, uh, eschatology, end times movie. And what it is, is it's very, like, 1970s. It's got a cool 1970s soundtrack and everything else. And it sort of starts off with a clock. And this girl, this blonde-haired girl, wakes up. And she kind of goes outside. And there's news reports. And there's, like, one helicopter because it's pretty low budget. And they're like, everyone has been raptured. Everyone, you know, a lot of people have been raptured. And so people are going and freaking out and uh, trying to figure out what happened. And there are news reports. And there are police officers. And the Antichrist springs up. And all these things sort of happen. But when I was uh, eight, in my eight-year-old mind, I couldn't, I couldn't process all this. I thought, this is in the Bible? This sort of bad 70s rapture movie is in the Bible? I was, I was shocked and confused and couldn't believe or understand uh, what I was seeing. And so I started to, you know, 
I, I heard, overheard some of the discussions, but I started to have a lot of my own fears and apprehensions about the rapture. I remember thinking, okay, well, this is, you know, this is coming. This is going to happen. And so I remember riding my bike home from school, and all of a sudden it was a really sort of cloudy, overcast day, and I heard trumpets sounding and everything else, and I thought, all right, that's it. The rapture's coming. And so I went home and thought my you know, parents would all be piles of clothes and th- it was going to be over. Uh, but, but they were all there. And I was like, Mom, you're here. And uh, I hugged her and I was so happy. And everyone else was there and the rapture had not come. And I, cu- I found out later it was just a marching band practicing. And so, uh, uh, but, and then I, I had all these fears. I, I talked, uh, I did a reading at the mill a while ago and talked a little bit about this, but I had these fears about the end of the world. I feared, you know, Jesus can come back, but I kind of want to have a girlfriend before Jesus comes back. I kind of, I'm eight and other guys have maybe had a girlfriend or whatever that means when you're eight years old. And I was like, like once I get a girlfriend, then Jesus can come back. So I'm not sure if there are girlfriends in heaven. And it'd be sad to go to heaven before I, I get a girlfriend. And I've talking with the rapture, I've sort of had that, uh, at different places, had conversations with people, and found there's always this sort of one event that people hold on to and say, the rapture can come, but the rapture can come, but I kind of want this. I kind of want to get married first, or I want to have kids first, or I want to have, there's some one sort of event that we want very strongly. Has anyone sort of had that sort of event that you think, the rapture can come as long as I can get married first? Who would say that? Anyone in here? All right, look around. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, be social afterwards. This is great. And so uh, we kind of have that, that one event that we're holding on to. And I found that's part of the reason that I wrote, Aaron talked about it briefly, but that I wrote this book. It's a, it's a satire and also an allegory for these sort of fears and these big ideas that uh, come along with uh, the rapture. So what I'm going to do first is read uh, just a short sort of opening chapter that I have in this, and then it'll launch us into some of the big ideas for the talk this morning. Uh, but before I do that, let's go ahead and take a moment and pray And uh, before I get started in this. So Father God, thank you so much, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, Mill Sunday School where we can come and talk about and debate and discuss big ideas, Lord. And so I pray this morning, Lord, that you would just speak into this service, Lord, that you'd be with us, Lord, and that you'd really guide our thoughts and ideas and guide me as I teach. In your name, amen. So the idea for this book is this. It's called The End Is Now, and it's about Goodland, Kansas. And they are the test market for the rapture. So before God brings the rapture to the rest of the world, he's going to test it out in Goodland just to make sure everything goes okay. So it's a... it's a little bit Steven Spielberg, a little bit Monty Python, kind of mix of both. Uh, and so I got inspired about this idea, and here is uh, the first chapter that I wrote. Goodland, Kansas. One week from tomorrow, at precisely 6.11 in the morning, the rapture or apocalypse or Armageddon or whatever else you'd prefer to call it is going to occur, but only in Goodland, Kansas. The rapture will not take place anywhere else in the world. It will not crash the stock market cause cars to wrecks, or leave planes without their pilots. Husband will not leave for the kitchen to grab a jar of pickles, only to come back to the living room and discover that their wives are now nothing more than piles of clothes. Power plants will not shut down, leaving televisions, light bulbs, street lamps, and hair dryers without electricity. Running water will not stop, forcing citizens to take baths in rivers and wash their clothes in lakes. Meteors will not crash in the ocean and create tidal waves. Nuclear missiles will not be launched from the USSR, North Korea, East Germany, or any of those pesky countries in the Middle East. Barcodes will not be tattooed on the wrists or foreheads. The number 666 will be nowhere in sight except for those rare instances when a customer at McDonald's buys nothing but a flail fish and a medium strawberry shake, and the total, including tax, comes out to be $6.66. A world government will not be formed. Computers will not melt down because they are confused about what the year 2000 actually means. Aliens will not blow up the White House. Nothing like this will happen. That is, nothing like this will happen anywhere but in Goodland. This goes against conventional wisdom. Most people think that when the end comes, it will be widespread. Trumpets will sound and horsemen will appear, and it will be a whirlwind of all kinds of tribulation, from pre-trib to post-trib to middle-trib. But that doesn't make sense. It's just not how such things work. It's not true to the pattern of how other miraculous destruction has occurred in history. There are always warning signs. God simply didn't destroy Nineveh. Jonah was swallowed by a whale and then sent to Nineveh to warn of its impending doom. Moses warned Pharaoh before the plagues hit. 
And even then, plagues started out innocently enough. Simple stuff like frogs and locusts before the heavy hitters like blood rivers and death angels. Peter warned Ananias and Sapphira. Lot warned Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the end, they were all destroyed to warn others about the danger of wickedness. This is what will happen in Goodland. Their rapture will be a signal to the world. They are a warning, a sacrificial lamb. It makes sense. Once everyone sees how powerful the rapture is, they'll be afraid or excited. They'll hit the floor and repent of their sins. Everyone, everywhere, will know the truth. Not only that, but this event will provide God a chance to see how things go. He can look at the rapture and see what worked and what didn't. He can watch the good, the bad, and the ugly of the apocalypse so he can know how to improve on it when he takes it global. Goodland is the test market for the rapture, the ultimate warning sign for all to repent. And so I wrote this chapter with sort of the big idea that in my experience, there's sort of two big sides of the way people approach eschatology. One is kind of like what Aaron was talking about before, which is pretty indifferent to it, pretty like, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but it doesn't really matter, don't really have to worry about it, and so uh, I think something's going to happen, there'll be an antichrist and a mark of the beast and some other stuff, and then Jesus will come back, but pretty blurry on the details of know the details at all. Other people are absolutely consumed with this event, and sort of, this is how it's going to happen, they're trying to figure out everything, and they're just really consumed, and they're predicting rapture events, uh, and predicting the end of the world. Anyone seen the movie 2012? 2012, yeah, the, the new Roland Emmerich movie just came out, and that's based on the idea of the Mayan calendar. And the Mayan calendar, for some reason, mysteriously sort of ends at the year 2012, and this is going back thousands and thousands of years. And so now, over the last you know, year or two, it's become a hot media topic, and why is that, and astronomers, and all sorts of people, and it's being debated on CNN, and morning shows, and everything else, of what the end of the world really means. And so there are two ideas, and this has been a hot topic in Christianity for, you know, pretty much since Christ was here. And the, the big launching point for this uh, discussion comes in Matthew 24, 3 through 31. So I want to read that this morning and then uh, discuss that um, real quick. But before we do that, I want to take a moment and to talk about at your tables, where you are on the rapture scale. Are you sort of the passive, uh, I don't really know, are you really fascinated with it, or are you really worried about it, or have you ever really been worried about it? So take a moment in your tables and discuss kind of where you are on the rapture continuum.
Okay. Alright, I'd love to hear from two or three of you of what your personal take is or what your table's kind of general consensus take was on eschatology and sort of this rapture scale. I've kind of written it out here. Uh, this is uh, kind of the far end. Don't believe in it. Don't believe that it's going to happen. Don't believe sort of, I, I think it's our, either our, the events in Revelation have already happened or just don't believe that it's going to happen like it says it is. This is, it'll happen when it happens, sort of in, uh, indifferent about it. This is interested but not afraid. This is very curious to sort of afraid and worried about the event. And this uh, far end of the scale is I'll be raptured on the way home from church. And so uh, just sort of curious to see where you guys fall, some of you guys fall on the scale. So who's brave enough to cor- sort of share your personal eschatology? Yes. Uh, we, we got a microphone coming for you. Hold on just a second. And who else? Just have someone on deck. Who el- anyone else? Brave enough, brave enough. Okay. Yeah, right up here next. Uh, personally, I we would fall right in the middle. It's something that interests us, but it doesn't consume our ever-living thought either. Great, great. Okay, yeah. Well, I would say that uh, I'm on the second mark there. I think it'll happen when it happens. I think that, as we know in the past, Christians have tried to predict when the rapture is going to happen. And it doesn't happen, and it makes us all look dumb. And as I said this morning when I came up to you, uh, I talked to an elderly woman that I worked with at work, and I told her, Jean, did you know the world is coming to an end? And she said, it has been most of my life. <laughs> that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, we both had a good laugh. Yeah, that's good. Any, anyone else? Anyone else want to share a thought? Yeah. Um, I fall right in the middle, interested but not afraid. Um, I think that, that for me, um, what, I, what I really like get caught up on is, is the first and greatest commandment. And I feel like if, if we get that right, then when it happens, I'll be ready, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, part of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is being interested in everything the Lord said. And so... Um, like Aaron was saying, that he, you know, he talked a lot about the end of the world, and so that's something that I should be interested in and so that I should learn about. But at the end of the day, that, that shouldn't be the thing that, that consumes me. It should be loving the Lord your God. So that's, that's where I stand. That's good. That's good. I, I want to jump off that for a moment. We may be, get a few more views in a moment, but let's, let's talk about what you just said there. This is, this is what Jesus talks about in the uh, pa- passage that I researched a lot when I was writing this book. A lot of theologians really have discussed and debated this passage. So I want to read it to you. As, uh, it's Matthew 24, uh, verse, uh, starting at verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ, and will deceive many. You will hear wars and rumors of wars, but to see it, you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over and persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because the increase of wickedness and the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a whole world, as a testimony to the nations, and the end will come. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect, if that were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. At that time, the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with great power and with great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather the elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. 
So this is sort of a series of events that Jesus paints, and it's pretty, it's pretty somber. He's, you can kind of picture the scene. They're on the Mount of Olives, one of their favorite places. They're kind of sitting in the shade of trees on the rocks, and they're, they're private. It's sort of an intimate setting. This is not Jesus preaching this to the masses. This is just him with his disciples. And they say, okay, tell us what it's... And the disciples are pretty fascinated with this idea. What is this about the end of the age? And so Jesus paints a series of events. And it's important to notice that it's not one event that he paints there, but it's a series of uh, false prophets, earthquakes, birth pains, wars, you know, he's sort of, and he, he paints very broadly there. He's not giving specific uh, numerology or anything else, but these were sort of big, broad ideas that Jesus is talking about. And I, I think, and I've read lots of theologians who think this is sort of very intentional, that he's not, he's not talking in specifics, but just talking about life getting difficult. Um, it's also important to notice that this is not the last chapter in Matthew, like you were saying before. This is not the final command that Jesus came. This is not right before the ascension. And right before Jesus goes up, he sort of says, okay, here's how it's all going to end. Here's how it's going to happen. And so now you should go forth and make movies with Kirk Cameron. You should go forth and, you know, tell end time stories. You should go forth and worry about the rapture all the time. This is not, this is way, this is uh, Matthew 24. So there's still, he's going to tell some more parables in the next chapter. And then he's going to go on and the crucifixion. And then there'll be 40 days after that and he's, he ascends to earth. So there's a long gap between time. This is just one of the teachings and one of the moments that Jesus was having with, having with the disciples. And uh, the other thing that's really important in this passage where everyone seems to get lost and forget uh, verse 36, which is, no one, after he says, he paints this whole picture, he gives this whole description, and then he tells the disciples, the last thing he says is, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. And so there's a reason that he, he is telling the disciples this is going to happen for a reason. But I think there's a couple of things to look at in this passage. One, you have to think, okay, he's telling this to the disciples. The disciples lived in a time, they were chosen this time when Jesus actually came to earth, and a lot of people doubted Jesus. A lot of people doubted he was who he said he was. He was the Messiah. He was, you know, there were all sorts of, you know, different interpretations. Is he Moses? Is he John the Baptist? Is he, you know, of who Jesus really was and what he was there to do. But uh, Jesus in this chapter talks about, I counted it, he says four times, do not be deceived. What he's telling the disciples is, listen, I'm going to go up to heaven. After this is all over, I'm going to go up to heaven. And then that's it of me coming to earth and hanging out with you guys. He says in verse uh, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole as as a testimony to all nations. So he's telling the disciples, listen, this is the last time that I'm here with you teaching. You're going to take this gospel. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to have this stuff happen to you. And you need to stand firm despite all of this that's happening to you and to your lives. Does that make sense? And so he's talking about, do not be deceived by other people who come and say they're me or whatever else. This is the last time I, I come like this. The next time that I come, he, he sort of paints the picture. And again, he pr- paints it in broad sort of pictures, so we don't know exactly. But he talks about a trumpet sounding. He talks about a big cloud. He says, it is going to be very different, and you will know that it is me that is coming back. You will not have to second guess. You will not be deceived. You will know that it is me coming back. Okay? And so, and so he gives this picture to, to the disciples. So some people sort of run this and taken it and gone different directions. Um, but the, Jesus frames this in a very specific way. So there are other verses that sort of uh, reference this passage later on in the New Testament. Uh, one really famous one is 1 Thessalonians four fifteen through verse 18. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we are who are still alive and left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is where a lot of... Um, you've talked about the different sort, sorts of uh, eschatology, I'm sure. There's three kind of main ones to know, and I'm not... Uh, 
going to get deep in the weeds of this, but essentially what eschatology means is this, the study of the end times. There's three sort of big ideas that happen. First is pre-trib. Uh, Joe's probably mentioned that, but pre-trib is the idea that the rapture, rapture will happen first, and then all the events in Revelation that are talked about will happen afterwards. And so this, First uh, Theologians 4, 15 through 17, is a pre-trib passage of Jesus will come, he'll blow the trumpets, the dead will rise first, everyone else will raise, and then all the th- things will happen that are left on earth. The next sort of big idea is the mid-trib idea, that some of these events, the famines, the wars will start happening, and then in the middle of that, the rapture will happen. After that is the Antichrist, and then seven years of tribulation, and then a thousand years of peace. Okay, so there's that sort of middle-trib idea. And the final is the post-trib idea. This, all the things on the earth will happen. There'll be the events of Revelation which are marks of the beast, uh, the Antichrist, seven years of tribulation. And then after all of that sort of suffering happens is when the rapture will happen and people will be raptured up into a new Jerusalem. And so there are sort of three different lines and people will, um, I don't know if you have a personal belief on that, uh, on where it is, but there's scriptural evidence to sort of hint at each one. But again, and I researched a lot for this book, and in my studies, there were no sort of ultimate, definitive, like I said, it's open-handed. It's going to be pre-trib, it's going to be middle-trib, it's going to be post-trib. It's sort of how you interpret the scriptures that are going. But just so you know, and if you ever get into one of these conversations with a theologian, those are sort of the three uh, streams of thought. But after... uh, for theologians, it's also important to know why uh, Paul's talking about this. And so he says, and so, uh, after that we are st- still left, we'll be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we'll be the Lord with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. You have to think, Paul's writing to uh, churches that were persecuted and churches that were fra- facing trials. And so he's saying, you know what? This is a trial and this is a problem that you're facing, but we're sort of called to something greater. There's another chapter uh, in Corinthians where Paul talks about this as well. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not sleep, but we will be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. When the perishable has been clothed with imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he talks about, in the first part of uh, this passage, in verse 51, he talks about, we will not sleep, but we will be changed in a flash in the twinkling of the eye at the last trumpet. Again, he's referencing this idea in Matthew 24. But he says, there is no, the reason that he says this is important is because, again, he's talking to the church in Corinth who's going through some problems, and he says, death is not the end. Death is not defeat. Our victory comes in the next life, and that's what we're living for. We're living to preach the gospel. We're living to go forth. We're living to share the good news because there's no sting in death. There's no sting in this. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, this is a famous uh, eschatology packet, passage, but he wraps it up with that idea. So I want to give you some sort of what I've found um, in this big idea is some pros and cons of, the, uh, of rapture eschatology and the way that it's um, responded to. Some of the cons are fear. Fear. Uh, a lot of these end-of-the-world passages, end-of-the-world ideas result in, in fear and people being afraid and people uh, sort of sensing that the end of the world is coming. There's a lot of fear that... Does anyone remember Y2K? You know, yeah, Y2... Did anyone... Was anyone sort of afraid of Y2K? Anyone sort of brave enough? Yeah, you know. I, I sort of was at the beginning. I was like, man, all the computers shutting down and power blacking out and all that sort of stuff. And then I was like, it seems kind of odd that computers that can do all this stuff they can make like animated movies and do calculated spreadsheets but like a day is going to change and all of a sudden the commuters are like do not compute and can't you know can't figure it out i was like i can't believe that they're not going to be able to figure this one out i was like maybe you're like 1984 apple 2e is going to crash but i think i think all the rest of us are going to be pretty okay and turns out that was the case but at the time if you remember just you know 
almost 10 years ago now, it was a big deal. I mean, I knew people who were like buying canned goods and buying water and making basements and had like sort of a whole Y2K center. And I'd go hang out in the Y2K center and eat like chowder and watch football games, but we never actually, you know, needed it for any actual Y2K purposes. But there was a lot of fear that was going on in there. And people, uh, people preyed on that fear and, uh, sort of jumped on that fear. And so I think that sort of idea of, uh, like a lot of you said when I said, what's your eschatology, of like, I'm interested, but I'm not afraid. And all of these passages that the Bible talks about, it's always, they talk about this big idea, and then very, very clearly, every one of the authors, or Jesus as he was talking about it, said, do not be afraid. You do not know the day or the hour. It's important to know this is happening, but not to be consumed by this idea. But still, sometimes we don't hear the last part, and we just imagine the fear. We imagine everything going wrong, and so we, we sort of face that uh, afraid. All right, uh, the, next, the next thing that's sort of... Um, a con in the way that people approach eschatology is looking to the big event. Everyone's sort of uh, waiting for that big event to happen. And our culture, honestly, uh, Christian, non-Christian, whatever else, we are pretty fascinated with this idea. I mentioned Y2K, there's 2012. If you look in the box office uh, at the movies that are selling and the, the masses are going to, about every six months, there's a new end of the world movie that's coming and that people are watching. There's Independence Day. There's Day After Tomorrow. There's 2012. There's all these, you know, the uh, all these big sort of scary movies that, sh- I mean, I don't know how many times I've seen like Rome collapsing and the Eiffel Tower blowing up and the White House exploding. I mean, these are sort of... In- you know what I'm talking about? These are images that we're sort of indoctrinated with and inundated with and we're sort of anticipated or almost excited about this big event or at least very curious in this happening. And so some people will become so fascinated with this and some people have devoted their lives so much over here to where the end is coming near, the end is coming near and focus their life and focus their time and focus their energy on it, that they're not doing the simple things, which is sharing the gospel, taking care of each other, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so if you get way too over here and the fascinated with the end of the world, then, uh, then you can lose some of that just sort of living your life like we've he- been put here to live it. Okay? The other, another sort of con that I've seen happen, and uh, a lot of people, uh, especially I've seen big ministries, big TV ministries fall prey to this, but sort of trying to put together the rapture puzzle. They're like, well, Michael Jackson, Farrah Fawcett, and Ed McMahon all died within 48 hours. So that means we better get ready. You know, that, that's, that's like a piece. That's like a big deal. And so they put that piece on, and then Oh man, another Democrat's in the office. That's a big piece. Or, oh no, Sarah Palin's running in 2012. That's a big piece. We all sort of put these pieces together and whatever our thing is that we fear, we sort of uh, put it on to everyone else and assume this is the event. This is sort of the springboard. This is, you know, the birth pains that we've been talking about. Like um, American Idol is going into season 10. That's a birth pain that the Lord was talking about. That is a big problem. And so what are we going to do? And we get all afraid and everything else. Or we just sort of get curious and consumed with it. We put the uh, rapture puzzle together. And uh, I think kind of going on one of the ideas that someone mentioned of like the world has been ending for most of my life. Um, A friend of mine, Jason Boyette, wrote this book called The Pocket Guide to the Apocalypse. And he chronicles all of the rapture predictions made by Christians since... um, the year 2000. And I'll just, I'm going to go through and just list some of these for you very quickly. Uh, the, first, the first big one after Christ was 70 AD in Jerusalem. And the Gospel of Mark, believed to have been written 40 years or so after the death of Christ, Jesus gives his disciples a preview of the end, predicting wars, rumors, earthquakes, and famines. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away. All things have happened. Uh, and so he goes and talks about this. And then a lot of people thought, wow, this is coming soon. So there was a certain branch that really thought that. And so in 70 AD was the first big prediction. And then in the year 156 AD in, in Phygria, uh, a guy named Monastus uh, started speaking in tongues, proclaiming prophecies. He gains a bunch of followers. He picks up a couple of secondary seers, starts a whole cult uh, 
branch about the end of the world. And uh, he gives a doomsday call and says, you know, in the year 157, this is really going to happen. 157 hits, and he said, I meant um, 158 A.D. is when that's going to happen. The year 500 A.D. was a nice noun round number. Surely Jesus will return in such a year. Hippolytus, uh, Irenaeus, a lot of theologians thought this. It did not happen. Uh, You probably knew that. 950 AD in France, European monks, a a whole sect of them, started reading uh, sort of into the sign and then the stars. They saw the wars going out around Europe and thought this must be the end of the world. Still did not happen there. Uh, The year 1033 AD, some people thought a thousand years after Jesus would be the end of the world. It... uh, and then there, was, there wasn't really a cult that formed from that, but there was still a lot of fear and buzz. Uh, 1525 in Germany, Thomas Munzner, uh, he sort of talks about the end of all agents. He gets a lot of serfs and peasants to revolt uh, with pitchforks and everything else, saying this is the end of the world coming. We can unite because the end of the world is here. We can help bring it on. And they were all put in prison, and the end of the world did not arrive. And I think this is an important story about all this, because certain people will use these sort of primal fears, this eschatology, this end times, for sort of a certain point, for a certain big idea that they're trying to get across. And if you see that, I would just uh, challenge you to be guarded and to be thoughtful uh, when people are preaching eschatology or talking about it and saying the end of the world is coming and because of the end of the world, we need to do this. If the this isn't love the Lord your God, uh, have a foundation in Jesus, then you should be guarded against those teachings. Uh, 1650, England. Uh, Bishop James Usher uh, publishes uh, The First Origins of the World and has a whole book, one of the first sort of end-time books written. I'll go to some of the more modern ones. Uh, 1914 in uh, Oklahoma. Wait, is this the one I want? No, 1908 in Pennsylvania. Uh, Lee Splanger has an apocalyptic vision. Years later, as the owner of a grocery store in York, he seems to have suddenly remembered that revelation. He steps on a literal soapbox in aisle five and informs his customers of the end of the world to its last can of beans. The whole enterprise is slanted to the end of October. He tells them on an account of its spectacular reign of fire, many patrons believe. Others, troubled by the mere notion of a prophetic grocer, simply buy their sugar and flour and return home. October offers very little in fiery doom department. So this guy, this guy uses the end of the world to sell groceries, which is an uh, interesting marketing technique. Uh, February 13th, 1925 in Long Island. Uh, Margaret Rowan has a vision, uh, takes his life savings to buy a billboard announcing a hilltop picnic and a rapture get-together. And so he goes and advertises that all around town. And he, they say at 3 a.m., there's going to, the end of the world is coming. They have this big picnic, this big gathering. Everyone's looking up at the stars, waiting for it to happen. Once it hits 3.01, he meant maybe like 3.05 it's going to happen. And uh, by the end of the night, everyone was gone. Uh, let's see. And there were, there were some more recently in my lifetime. There were 88 reasons Jesus is coming back in 88. Does any, has anyone heard of that book or remember that book? Yeah, it was re- when I was sort of around that age, around eight years old, there was 88 reasons Jesus is coming back in 88. And everyone's reading this book and talking about it and debating it. Uh, but again, it does not come to pass. And I think that's... Again, this is part of the cons, but something that really, like, looking for that specific date and looking for that specific time, it really just ends up making us look foolish, causing a lot of needless worry and a lot of wasted time. Because, again, like it says, no one knows the day or the hour. There are some, some pros and some good reasons uh, for, for the rapture, and I think pros of the ideas of why Jesus talked about this and why Jesus shared this story. First, uh, I think... It's because we're called to something greater. I think Jesus wants us to know that, listen, we do have this life on earth, but there is revelation. There is a life on, after earth. There is something happening. So yes, we're called to do something greater, and we're called to do something here. But there's a life after this that we're truly meant for, and that we're truly calling for, called for. And so he talks about that many times with his disciples. John talks about that in Revelation. And so the idea of 
this life is temporary and it's important and a lot of things uh, that happen happen here. But do not invest everything that you have in this life. Invest what you have in relationships and living your life right and sharing the gospel of Christ with other people so you can know what happens, um, uh, so you can have rewards in the next life. I think another pro big idea in this is uh, it causes us to take stock on our life on earth. Uh, I think we have certain events that sort of... Have you ever had one of those events, like something that really rattled you to your core? Um, I know when I was in high school, I was... uh, We had just graduated, me and my buddies were taking a camping trip. And we were driving up to Highway 24 to go camping there in the mountains. And we were driving on a two-lane highway there. And it was my buddy's, like, for, he had just gotten a new car and hadn't driven very much because he didn't have a car before. So he was 18 years old with a driver's license. And we're like, wow, we're going to go on our first sort of manly camping trip. We did that. We, like, you know, killed chipmunks and ate them and had bonfires. And it was very, like, manly rite of passage time. And then early that next morning, we got, home, we got in the car and we started heading home. And there's this... Uh, sort of little hill over by Lake George and we, we started going up there and he started passing this car because he had never ri- driven on a two lane highway and so he started passing this car and we were side by side with this car going over the hill and right as we were going over that hill another car started coming up at us and this was this moment in my life I remember it it caused it, sort of the, your life flashes before your eyes I don't know if you've ever had that moment but this was the moment in Rob Stinnett's life where I'm sitting there we're side by side there's guard rails on both sides and this car is right there about to hit us and I thought this is the end like goodbye I mean I was I was honestly turned pale white clutching the uh clutching the uh back of the seat and just completely afraid sort of holding there that car's coming right at us that car slams on the brake we slam on our brake the car sort of skids we ended up going off of um through this guardrail, off of this embutment, the car flips a couple of times, and we're there, and it's twisted, and it's smoking, and I mean, it was just this sort of violent, violent car accident, and I remember they're laying, and there was sort of camping gear, and chairs on top of me, and one of the seats were on top of me, and I was sort of twisted, and everything else, and this guy runs up to me, and he sort of looks at me, and I'm looking at him, and he says, he sort of reaches down, and he says, hey, can you feel this? And I'm like, feel what? And he's like, don't move. You might be paralyzed. And then he runs off, and I was like, "Kaka, what?" <laughs> and so he says that. Next thing I know, there's like fire trucks, and they're taking the jaws of life, and they sort of rip open the car, and they take me, and they put me on this gurney, and strap me up, and then they go and they put us. Uh, finally, it took them about two hours to get me out of the car. They put me on one of those flat boards with those head braces, and I still, I'm like, oh man, am I going to be paralyzed? Will I be able to, you know, run like a bird ever again? I'm having this, like, really just, just bad day, and so I go. They put me in a helicopter, and then it was my first helicopter ride ever, though, so I was like, is there any way you can unstrap me a little bit so I can look around? I've kind of never been in a helicopter, and I'm pretty excited about this. They're like, what is wrong with this kid? And so... They go, they put me there, and then uh, go, the doctor goes, they put me in CAT scans and x-rays and all this sort of stuff. They talk about, uh, they say, your T11, your T12 vertebrae is broken. And so uh, it really, like, uh, it was at the very beginning of the summer, right after my senior year that I graduated. And so I kind of had this whole summer to sit around and take stock of my life. And it was one of the first moments I'd kind of just been going through high school, just cruising through life. And it was one of those first moments, those events, an event that rocked me and said, Rob, what are you really doing with your life? What are you really going to amount to? What are you really spending your time on? And sort of uh, made me really contemplate. And I was there and I was sort of uh, had a back brace and I was bedridden for weeks and couldn't do much for the whole summer. And so it gave me a lot of time to pray and contemplate and ask questions. And I think uh, we have this event sort of out there in front of us as this thing to where like, don't get so caught up in these little things, material goods, uh, uh, you know, who should I go out with on Friday, all these sort of little things that we can get caught up with in our life that we don't take stock of who we really are and where we're really going and what we're really doing. And so I think that's part of the reason that 
God doesn't just say, well, the world is going to come to an end and that'll happen or doesn't hint at it at all. But he wants the disciples to know. He does tell them, this is coming. This is going to happen. It is the last book in the canon of the Bible of Revelations talking about this event. And yes, the way it's going to happen and the way all the events will fall into place are highly debated. But the fact that we are not meant just for this life, we're called to something greater, is something that was on the forefront of everyone's minds. So we live our life by taking that in stock and keeping that in mind. Uh, Well, I don't think I'm going to have time for this. I'm going to do this quickly, which is just, I'm going to read just a piece, and I read some of this in the middle of um, a chapter of this book, and sort of... uh, this is what I had in mind when I was writing this, is different characters sort of facing this problem and how they would deal with it and how they would react to it on this scale. And I think the, I think the goal is to try to find somewhere in the middle where we, where we are knowledgeable, where we are fascinated with it, where we are able to debate it, but we're not completely skeptical. I don't believe it's going to happen. I think you know we're pretty much life here on Earth, and then that's it. That's all that's going to happen. Or... I'm going to be raptured on the way home from church and I'm freaked out about this all the time. There's got to be this middle, this middle ground that we land on. So uh, that's what I was going for in this book is to talk about all the different ways that people react to this event. So I'm just going to take a moment and I'll read one passage and talk about that and then we'll close. This is from uh, chapter 2 of The End is Now. So the opening part of the passage is where... Um, Will Henderson, he's my, my first character in the book, and he was uh, looking through Batman comics. He was feeling really bad for Batman because all the other superheroes have a really cool superpower, and Batman pretty much bought his way into the Super Friends Club, didn't have laser vision or couldn't fly. He just had a cool car, and so they kind of let him in. And so Will's kind of contemplating all that. And then I'll open there. Will was almost in a trance, flipping through the pages, thinking about Batman, when Nate said, Dude, you don't have to be home. It's almost dark. Will looked up at the clock. Shoot, I gotta go. He jumped off Nate's bed, ran downstairs, and opened the door to leave. See you later, Mrs. Jackson, Will said. If the Lord tarries, Mrs. Jackson called from the kitchen. Once Will was out of Nate's house, he started walking home down the gravel road. The road was on the outskirts of Goodland, and on either side were large corn stalks as tall as NBA players. Will walked as quickly as he could. But even at his quick place, he wouldn't make it home in time. His family lived so far away from everybody. Still, he needed to make it home. This was Monday night dinner. This was a huge deal. So the only chance he had to make it home right before he was grounded for the next month was to cut across the cornfields. Will stepped in the fields and knew that if he walked in a straight diagonal line, he would at least cut at least 20 minutes off his walk home. He'd have, just, he'd have to keep walking quickly and he'd be there in no time. He'd be there before his mom would call Nate Jackson's mom and ask where he was. Will didn't like when his mom talked to Nate's mom. They always talked about religious things. Of course, most people talked about religious things in Goodland. Will had visited some of his cousins in Denver last summer and noticed that no one around there ever said things like, if the Lord tarries, when they said goodbye. But in Goodland, that was how most people said goodbye. Kind of like saying gesundheit after someone sneezes. But the thing is, most people say gesundheit after you sneeze. It seemed to Will that no one said if the Lord tarries anywhere else in the world. He wanted to make sure, so he tested this theory a month ago when his family visited the World's Month of Fun Amusement Park in St. Louis. The teenager, buckling Will into the roller coaster, told him, have a good ride, and Will answered, if the Lord tarries. The teenager looked at Will as if he were from Neptune. On the road trip home from the amusement park, Will asked his mom, how come nobody else talks like we do? What do you mean, his mother answered. Nobody in the Denver Worlds of Fun says things like, if the Lord tarries. Only people in Goodland says things like that. That's because they're not concerned with the rapture, his mother said. Oh, you know what the rapture is, don't you? Of course he knew what the rapture was. Everyone knew what the rapture was. He'd heard about it lots of times in Sunday school. People around town talked about it every once in a while. And from the way people talked, Will always worried that it was coming soon. That made Will scared. He didn't want to die. Not that it was dying, really. Or was it? He'd have to go away. His life on earth would be over. Isn't that essentially what dying is? Does it matter if you skip the pain? Or is the pain part of dying? Do you have to experience something bad, like a bullet through your chest, or a car wreck, or liver cancer, or burning, or drowning? Is that part of dying? Probably it was. So that was one thing Will liked about the rapture. He'd get to skip the pain part of the dying. It was like God would hit fast forward or skip to the next chapter, and be whisked away to some magical place with clouds and harps and singing. He'd be whisked away to heaven. So it wasn't really heaven that bothered him. It was just there was so much here that he hadn't experienced. He'd graduated and thrown his cap high. He'd never graduated and thrown his cap high in the air. 
He'd never learned to drive or been able to pick up a girl by himself at prom night. He wouldn't be able to go on a camping trip with just his friends like they'd always plan on. He had never owned his own house or had a job where he made lots of money so he could spend it on video games and guitars and flat screen TVs. Worst of all, he'd never had a girlfriend. He'd never even kissed a girl like the other guys in girl school said they had. And he'd certainly never had the S word with a girl. And he sort of wanted to do that too. Not until he was older, not until his wedding night, and maybe not until a while after that. <laughs> the S word sounded scary and weird, but kind of fun, and also scary and intimidating for Will right now. But it wouldn't always be scary. Someday he'd be ready. Still, he didn't think about that much, but he thought about his wife all the time. He wondered what she'd look like. She'd probably have blonde hair and she'd like to play soccer or volleyball. Will even wondered if he knew his wife right now. Sometimes during math when the teacher was writing long division problems on the board, he'd look around the classroom and wonder if his wife was sitting in class with him. Was she just a few desks away and just as bored as he was? What if someday, once they were married, they'd talk about math class and tell each other, that's where I first noticed you, in math, during those super boring lessons. That's when I knew we'd be married. But that day would never come. He'd never get to have that conversation with his wife. He'd never get to know who his wife really was. He'd probably be raptured before them. And that wasn't fair. This is a point Will often brought up in his prayer time. God, why can't you wait till I'm old, like 25 until you bring the rapture? Let me do some of the stuff that other people have gotten to do for thousands and millions of years before me. Isn't that fair? And then Will felt like God spoke this answer to him. No, that wasn't fair. The rapture had to come someday. It couldn't wait until everyone turned 25, because then it would never happen. And besides, there were some people who were babies or little kids, and they'd never get to experience all the good stuff Will had. They'd never get to ride in a bike or whitewater raft or go see the Kansas City Royal play live and in person. He should consider himself lucky he'd got to do all that. Even more, he's very lucky that the rapture is going to happen in his lifetime. He was special. And so this is kind of the... Last big idea is this, I think the reason that this is such a big idea is these are primal sort of things that uh, we deal with as Christians of walking through this life and worrying about the, this life and worrying about the next. And so all the time we have to remind ourselves to be mindful of where, we, where we're going and what God's called us to, but not to become so afraid or saddened by the way things are going to play out that it paralyzes us. And so that's, I think as we're, wrapping up the series. I'm not sure if Joe's going to talk a little bit more on it next week or not, but as you're wrapping up the end time and your theology and as you're talking about it with people, I challenge you to sort of find that middle ground of being interested in it, but not consumed by it. Okay, let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we thank you for this time where we can get together on a Sunday morning and eat bagels and drink coffee and hang out with good people from the middle, Lord, and debate uh, your scripture and idea and words, Lord. And I pray as we go forward, Lord, that you really would be in the center of our lives, Lord, that we'd be living our lives for you as a witness to your gospel, to your calling on our lives, Lord, but that we also would trust in you, that we would not fear, and that we would not have our lives controlled by fear or worry or concern or anything else, Lord, but that you would bring us peace and be in the center of all we do. In your name, amen. Well, thanks for coming this morning. I'll be in the back. I do have copies of the Indus Now. I also have a sweet t-shirt that says, uh, I heart the rapture. So if you want a memento for this series, I have some of that. But uh, thank you guys. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving and we will see you next week.